All right, so we started this series with this passage of Scripture, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. So let's read through that as a refresher of where we're starting from. Colossians 1, verse 15, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. All right, so I want to draw your attention to verse 18 where it says, So that in everything he, he being Jesus, may have the supremacy. In everything, he may have the supremacy. The he is Jesus, and that word supremacy in some other translations is translated preeminence. So that Jesus in everything may have the supremacy or the preeminence. And what those words mean, supremacy and preeminence, they mean having first place in everything and surpassing all others. That Jesus would be above every other one in everything that he would have the very first place in absolutely everything. That's what this passage is talking about, and that's what I'd like to focus on this evening, the preeminence of Jesus, that in our lives, in our understanding, he would surpass all others. So to get there, we're going to take just a little bit of a detour. All right, just a little bit of a detour. I want you to think back to the story of Mary and Martha when Jesus came to their house. You remember this story? So Jesus is at the, the house of, of Martha, Mary's there, and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, and Martha is making preparations. She's doing all the work while Mary is sitting on the floor just listening to Jesus or sitting at his feet listening to him. Now, anybody who has a sibling probably knows how Martha felt. Right? If you've got a sibling, you know how Martha felt. Or maybe you don't have siblings, but you've had a roommate you know, or you've had a friend, the thing's happening, there's stuff that has to get done, and the other people are just sitting around, your brother's just sitting around, your sister's just sitting around, and you're doing all the work. Anybody ever been in that situation before? Right? And because we've been in that situation before, we're like, yeah, Martha, I get it. I know exactly what you mean. I see exactly where you're coming from. And then when Jesus responds to Martha with, hey, Martha, what are you doing? Jesus, uh, Mary has chosen the good part. She's chosen the good part. You're worried about all this stuff, but Mary's chosen the good part. You know what can happen? There can be a little offense that arises in our heart. And we're like, well, I get what you're saying, Jesus, but I also get what Martha's saying. And I can relate to what Martha's saying. And we get a little bit offended with the words of Jesus. And we're like, oh, yeah, I, I see what you're saying, but. I see what you're saying, but. I want you to imagine something, though. I want you to imagine that all of a sudden, a pair of shining feet starts coming down through the ceiling. And then after the shining feet comes some shining legs, and after the shining legs comes a shining body, and after the shining body comes shining shoulders, and then a neck, and then a head, and there's an angel descending into the room through the roof and then lands on the floor right here in the room. All right, this angel comes into the room. Now, 
let's take it out of fantasy realm because guess what? Angels have appeared to people before in the Bible, correct? Like it really could happen. It could be a real thing that an angel would be standing in this room. So imagine it's real. It's not some fantasy thing, but there really is an angel standing in this room. How would you respond? Like, what do you think your response would really be? This glowing, shining angel standing right here on the floor. What would your response be? Do you think there might be a little bit of fear? A little bit of trembling? Maybe even the temptation to fall down? (laughs) The angel standing here. Would your response rather be, man, we've got to get this room straightened up. If an angel's here, there's all kinds of people that are going to be coming, and the room's a little bit messy. There's stuff on the floor. There's some crumbs in the back in the coffee area. Coffee area is not very straight. Let me go. Wait, angel, you wait here. I'm going to go clean up the coffee area. Would anybody respond that way? No. We would be dying to hear what the angel had to say, right? The angel's appearing. What in the world is the angel going to do? And what in the world is the angel going to say? Guess what? Martha didn't have an angel in her living room. Who did she have? God. She had God in her living room. And so that little thing where we, we, we take offense along with Martha and we go, oh, yeah, I, I know. I kind of get what you're saying, Jesus. But if, you know, if, if Mary would just join her, they could get the work done quite, twice as fast. The reason that even passes through our mind is because we forget who Jesus is. We forget Jesus is God, and we get offended at his words. Because we forget he's God. And I'll tell you, there's so many times through Scripture where you see something that Jesus says, and you kind of be like, ouch, I don't know if I like that, Jesus. Really? Really, you're going to say that, Jesus? Like, he, he looks at the woman who's not a Jew, who wants healing, and he goes... Hey, is it right for the children's bread to go to the dog? And we're like, ooh, yeah, I don't know if I like that, Jesus. We forget that Jesus is God, and we get offended with what he says. So I have an idea that can be really helpful. If you ever run across the passage of Scripture and you're reading it and you feel a little bit of offense, it says, Jesus said this, and you go, ooh, I don't know if I like the this. This can be really helpful. Every time where it says, and then Jesus said, put in the words instead, and then God in the flesh said. And see if it changes that offense in your heart. God in the flesh said, because when we forget who Jesus is, then it's easy for us to get offended at the things he says. Let's look at another passage of Scripture. John 6, 26 through 66. We're not going to read all 41 verses, okay? We're going to truncate it a little bit just for the sake of time. But this is an important passage of Scripture, so let's look at this. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. All right, so what's going on? Jesus had just done this miracle where there were 5,000 men plus their families that needed to be fed out in the middle of nowhere. They had a few fish and a little bit of bread, and he multiplies it, and everybody eats and is satisfied, and then there's leftovers. And then the crowd can't find him. They're like, hey, where'd he go? Where'd he go? So they look all over for him. They find him. The crowd gathers again, and Jesus tells them, you know the reason that you're coming to me is not even that I can do miracles, The reason that you're coming to me is because you want some more fish and bread. You want some free food. 
Okay, that's what's going on, and that's what he's telling them. Then look what happens, verse 29. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they ask him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus had just told them, hey, crowd, you're only here because you want a free meal. You're not even here because I can do miraculous signs. And they're like, like, oh, well, prove it with a miraculous sign. Give us some more food to eat. They're just exactly proving his point. The only reason they're there is because they want a free meal. All right, look what happens then. Verse 35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life, for I have come down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me. At this, the Jews there begin to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Jesus answered, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Are you aware, uh, sorry, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this? Jesus said to them, does this offend you? From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. What's going on? The crowd came to see him because they wanted something from him. And when he said, basically, to them, he says, I'm God, and I don't do things the way you want me to do them. You need to do them the way I want them done. They said, you know what? We don't really believe you're God. Therefore, we're offended at you. Therefore, we're not following you anymore. This isn't talking about the 12 disciples. This is talking about all the guys. This huge crowd had been following him as disciples, going from place to place, following where he was going and following his teachings. And after this happened, because they didn't believe he was God, because they got offended with him, they stopped following him. Offense in our heart towards him based on the fact that we don't understand he's God can lead us into the same predicament. What they wanted was a Messiah who would conform to their wishes. They did not want a Messiah who says, no, you have to conform to my will. You have to do it the way that I say to do it. They get offended, and because of their offense, they stop following him. All right, so they would follow a Jesus who would give them what they wanted, but they wouldn't follow Jesus as he really was. Basically, they're saying, hey, who are you to tell me that I have to eat your blood and drink, or drink your blood and eat your flesh? Who are you to tell me that? They're forgetting that he's God. They're not believing that he's God. One more passage of Scripture, then we'll put it all together. Matthew eleven two through six, and when Jesus had heard in sorry when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, "Are you the coming one, or do we look for another?" Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So what's happening? John the Baptist, it's John the Baptist, is now in prison. John the Baptist has some disciples. And John's hearing about all the miracles that Jesus is doing. And he goes... He takes two of his guys and he goes, hey, guys, would you go over to him and just double check? 
Just double-check that he really is the Messiah. He really is the one we're waiting for. Would you just go double-check with him? So John's disciples, they go over to Jesus, and they say, hey, John just wanted us to ask. He's just double-checking. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? And Jesus goes, well, hey, just watch what I'm doing. And they see the lepers are being cleansed. The dead are being raised. The poor are having the gospel preached to them. And he goes, what do you guys think? And they're like, oh, yeah, obviously. Obviously, this is the Messiah. Okay, we're good. We've seen it with our own eyes. We know what's going on. We'll go back and tell John. And they're walking back to tell John. And Jesus goes, hey, wait a minute, guys. One more thing. Don't get offended because of me. And they're walking out going, wait, what is he talking about? And he's like, guys, just remember this. Don't get offended because of me. And they're probably walking back going, he's doing miracles. He's raising the dead. He's healing the lepers. He's cleansing these guys. He's, he's, he's preaching the gospel to the poor. Why in the world would we be offended with him? They probably think, yeah, we'd never be offended with him. Why did Jesus tell them that? Because what was about to happen? John the Baptist, who they'd been following, is about to be murdered. And Jesus isn't going to stop it. And he's not going to raise him from the dead. He's able to raise the dead clearly, but he's not going to raise John from the dead. And Jesus is saying, do not get offended with me because I am God and I do not conform to your will. He's saying, I am God and I do not conform to your will. Do not get offended with me. Now, we have a luxury today that the disciples in that day didn't have. All those that were following Jesus, when he comes to them and he goes, hey, guys, you got to eat my flesh, drink my blood, and they get offended with that, they can't say, you know what? I don't like this. I don't like what Jesus is saying. I'm still going to be a follower of Jesus, but I'm not really going to follow that Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is in the flesh, on the planet, walking around teaching, right? His followers are the ones who are actually following the guy in the body, walking around, giving his teachings, and they're actually agreeing with his teachings. So those guys, they didn't have a choice when they got offended with him, and they said, we're not going to follow that one. They can't say, I'm following Jesus, and be way over here when Jesus is way over there. If they say, hey, I'm following Jesus over here, everybody would look at him and go, you're nuts. No, you're not. Jesus is over there. You're not following him. But guess what? Today, we do have that luxury. We do have that option. We can say, I'm following Jesus and make Jesus out to be whoever we want him to be. And that's what happens so often. See, we get offended with Jesus. We get offended with the words of Jesus because we forget. We forget he's God. And we get offended with his words, but we don't want to leave him. So what we go is, you know, I'm still going to follow Jesus, but I'm just going to cut off the parts I don't like so I can put them in my pocket and carry them around with me. Just those pieces that I don't like, I'm just going to cut those off. That offends me. So I'm going to cut that off and I'm going to put Jesus in my pocket. He won't fit if I have that piece, but man, if I can cut that piece off, then I can keep him in my pocket. I can carry him around with me. Anybody ever seen an iPhone 6? I got an iPhone 6 here in my pocket, right? That's an iPhone 6. Anybody ever seen an iPhone 6 Plus? All right, for those who have not seen the iPhone 6 Plus, it's basically the size of a toaster. 
All right, the size of a toaster. That's what an iPhone 6 Plus is. So if a guy gets an iPhone 6 Plus, you don't even, he doesn't even have to tell you. You see Joe, you see Joe, and he doesn't have to say a word. You know, because Joe walks around like this now. He's like this. And you're like, oh, hey, Joe, you got an iPhone 6 Plus. And he's like, how'd you know? He's like, well, because it doesn't really fit in your pocket. You can't bend your leg anymore, so you have to walk like this. I know you got an iPhone 6 Plus because when something's too big to fit in your pocket, it changes the way you walk. When something is too big to fit in your pocket, it changes the way you walk. Jesus, when he gets too big, man, he changes the way we walk. And we go, oh, no, I don't like that. I don't want a Jesus that's going to change the way I walk. I want to walk the way I want to. Because we forget that he's God. No, in Jesus, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Colossians 2.9 is the next chapter over from where we are. In Jesus, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. He is God. We have a quote from A.W. Tozer here. It says, left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him where we can use him, or at least know where he is when we need him. All right, I'm going to read it twice because every time you read A.W. Tozer, you have to read it at least twice. All right. Left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him where we can use him, or at least know where he is when we need him. What's he saying? He's saying, you know what? I want Jesus in my pocket. I want him with me because what if I get sick and need healing? Then I want to be able to pull him out of my pocket and have him right there where I need him. Or what if I'm, you know, I'm sad and I need somebody to comfort me? Then I want to be able to pull Jesus out of my pocket and have him right there. What if I'm lonely and I need a friend? Then I want to be able to, you know, pull him out of my pocket and have him right there with me. Or, or what if I'm broke and I need a financial miracle? Oh, I got to have Jesus right there to pull out of my pocket. But who are you, Jesus? I don't want you telling me that I can't watch that thing that I like watching anymore because it's not appropriate. No, I don't, I don't like that part of you, so I'm going to cut that piece off. It'll fit in my pocket better. Or who are you, Jesus, to tell me that I have to forgive that person who wronged me? Do you understand what they did to me, Jesus? Do you understand? No, I don't like that, that you're telling me that I have to forgive that person if I want to follow you. I'm going to just cut that piece off of you so you'll fit in my pocket. Who are you, Jesus, to tell me that I have to change the way I'm handling my finances? Who are you, Jesus? That's my money. I don't like that part of you, so I'm going to cut that off so I can fit you in my pocket, and you won't change the way I walk. We want this Jesus who does not change the way we walk. We want to walk the way that we want to walk. And because we make those little adjustments to Jesus, we're willing to do that, cut off those pieces we don't like. In those areas, little compromises day after day, then when it gets to the big issues, we're willing to do the same thing. 
big social issues like, well, Jesus, you are all about love, right? Yeah, I know you're about love, Jesus. So that person loves that person. Well, surely, Jesus, you're in favor of them getting married. I mean, even if they're the same gender, right? Because you're all about love, Jesus. That's who you are, right? Surely you wouldn't make any sort of judgment and say that that was wrong or say they couldn't do that. I mean, isn't Jesus the one who said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone? Oh, Jesus was all about not making any judgments at all. I love that part about Jesus, the let him who is without sin cast the first stone. That's a Jesus I can pull out of my pocket and show him to everyone. Everybody loves that Jesus. Oh, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. No judging at all. Yes, that's the Jesus I want. Oh, but didn't right after he said that, didn't he look at the woman who was caught in adultery and tell her, go and sin no more? Sin no more. What you're doing is sin. I'm not condemning you right now, but what you're doing is sin. And if you want to follow me, you can't do that anymore. You've got to stop. Um, I don't like that so much, Jesus, because that's not a Jesus I can pull out and show to everybody. Everybody doesn't like that. So I'm just going to cut that piece off and put you back in my pocket. Because we're willing to do it, the small compromises day after day, cutting off the pieces we don't like. When it gets to the big issues, we're willing to do the same thing. Another quote from Tozer. There is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. Second reading, there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. When you see that that word doctrine, a lot of us, that doesn't mean much to us. Put it this way. What he's talking about is what does it mean to be a Christian and what does it mean to live as a Christian? And what he's saying is all the errors that we're seeing rising up in the church over what it means to be a Christian and how we are to live as Christians, the basis of them is this. We really don't know who God is. We don't have lofty enough thoughts about God. We've lowered God to less than who he is. Speaking specifically here, our topic, Jesus. We do not see Jesus as having preeminence supremacy, surpassing all others, we forget that he's God. We forget who he really is. And it leads to all of our doctrinal errors, all of our errors and how we're living our lives as Christians and all of our errors as far as what we proclaim it means to be a Christian. Is it what it means to be, to be someone who follows God? This same statement that Tozer made was made a long time ago by someone back in the book of Job. In the book of Job, you remember what's happening? Job's got all these horrible tragedies going on in his life, and he was a really righteous man. He has all these tragedies, and then his friends, so-called friends, come to him, and they start spouting off all this stuff. And all the things the friends are spouting off are full of doctrinal errors, full of all sorts of things that are false about God and what it means to be a follower of God. And then Job gets offended with what these guys are saying, and he starts spouting off doctrinal errors as well and saying things about God that are not true about God and what it's like to be a follower of God. And so all of them now are getting all these doctrinal errors in the things that they're proclaiming, and then Elihu speaks. 
And Elihu speaks in Job 36, 26, and he says this, Behold, God is great, and we do not know him. Behold, God is great, and we do not know him. He's saying the exact same thing Tozer's saying. He's saying, guys, you're spouting off all kinds of things that are wrong about what it means to be a follower of God. All kinds of doctrinal errors that you're spouting off, and they're based on this. We don't know God, man. We just don't know the greatness of who God is. If we understood the greatness of who he is, it would change everything. So I propose that we take that Old Testament statement, behold, God is great, and we do not know him, and we apply it in a New Testament sense, and we say this, behold, Jesus is great, and we do not know him. Why do we have all sorts of errors running rampant, even through the body of Christ? Because Jesus is great, and we do not know him. We do not know him as he really is. We do not acknowledge him as he really is. Again, Colossians 2.9, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Look at John 1, verses 1 through 3 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Who is the Word who became flesh? Jesus. Wasn't even a trick question, was it? Jesus, the Word who became flesh. Where was Jesus when creation was happening? He was with God. Who was Jesus when creation was happening? He was God. He is God. Everything that has been created was created through him, and nothing that has been created was created apart from him. Jesus is God. The God of Genesis 1 is Jesus. Look at this passage, Psalm 104.2. You who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He's talking about this Genesis 1 creation of the entire universe. So pause just a second and think about our universe. All right, our galaxy, it's called the Milky Way, right? We live in the Milky Way galaxy. There are 100 billion stars in our galaxy, 100 billion stars. I know because I counted them once. Just kidding. (laughs) If I tried to do that, I'd still be counting no matter how long ago I started. 100 billion stars in our galaxy. Now, I want you to imagine you get in a spaceship and you start at our sun and you fly from our sun to the next closest star, the very closest star in our galaxy at 60 miles an hour. And I chose 60 miles an hour because we all comprehend what that means. You know what it's like to go 60 miles an hour, right? In a minute, you go a mile. You know exactly what that feels like. So you're traveling at 60 miles an hour, and you're going to go from our sun to the very closest star in our galaxy. Now, there's 100 billion of them in our galaxy, but you want to get to the closest one. It's 60 miles an hour. How long do you think it will take you to get there? I'll tell you. 57.6 million years. Did I say 50? 47.6 million years. Does that boggle your mind just a little bit? That's to the closest star in our galaxy, and there's 100 billion of those in our galaxy. 
Guess what? Our galaxy is not the only one in the universe. Guess how many galaxies are in the universe? In the known universe, remember, our galaxy has 100 billion stars in it. Guess how many galaxies are in the known universe? 100 billion. I mean, our minds tilt. We can't even begin to comprehend it. Now I want you to think about, you get out of the shower, you're done with your shower, and you take the shower curtain and you go, to close it. Right? You close the shower curtain. This verse, Psalm 104, says, Jesus, our entire universe, a hundred billion galaxies, each with about a hundred billion stars in them, he spread it out like a curtain. We can't even begin to comprehend the magnitude of our universe, and he just, there it is, the entire universe. Jesus, who are you to tell me to do this with my life? Who am I? I'm God. I'm the one who created you. What do you mean, who am I to tell you that? Oh, I'm offended if you tell me that. You're offended? I created you. We need a larger vision of Jesus. We need to see him as he really is. It will change everything. Let's look at one more. Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, where was Jesus when this happened? He was with God, and who was Jesus when this happened? He was God. Scientists have been studying light for centuries, for centuries And the understanding of light has been changing that entire time. So at first, it was believed that light emanates from the eyeball. Light shoots out of the eyeball towards the object that it's seeing, right? To us, that seems silly, right? But that was the first idea. It shoots out of your eyeball. And then somebody goes, no, the the light doesn't shoot out of your eyeball. The light emanates from the object being seen. And then somebody discovered, wait a minute, it's not that the light's coming from the object being seen, it's the light is being reflected from the object being seen to our eyeball, and therefore we can see it. So that is the basic understanding of light, but still the question was, well, what is light still? Okay, that's how it works, but what is it? And so somebody goes, well, if it's reflecting off things, light must be like a ray, because it goes, it hits it, and then it bounces like a ray. And then somebody said, I don't think light is a ray. I think that light is actually a wave. And then somebody else goes, well, maybe it's not a wave. Maybe it's actually a particle. And then some experiments were done, and they go, they actually prove that light behaves as a wave. And they go, oh, so light, oh, it's definitely a wave. But then other experiments come along, and they actually prove that light behaves as a particle. So no, it's definitely a particle. It's not a wave, it's a particle. And then Einstein comes along, and he goes, actually... It's a wave and a particle. And that's kind of where our understanding of light is right now. But I guarantee you, I mean, that's that's the understanding of light that's been changing over centuries. I guarantee you a hundred years from now, what we believe about light and what we think to be true about light will seem silly. Just like the light shooting out of our eyeballs seems silly to us. Our current understanding will seem silly. Very silly to those 100 years from now because brilliant scientists will continue to study light and they'll use their supercomputers to, to figure things out and they'll figure out new things about light. 
that will make what we believe today appear silly. What's the point? The smartest scientist in the world, using the fastest computers available, have been studying light for centuries and still don't have a full understanding. And Jesus said, let there be. And it was. He said, let there be. And this thing came forth that we can't even begin to comprehend. The smartest guys studying for hundreds of years still don't get it. And Jesus just goes, let there be. And it is. Man, we've made Jesus so small in our eyes. And it affects every area of our lives when we diminish Jesus, when we diminish who he is. The worship team can come on up. I believe that there are two doors that most Christians rarely ever open. Two doors that most Christians rarely ever open. And they're this. One door is, who are you, God? And the other is, how do you feel about me, God? Two doors. Who are you, God? And how do you feel about me, God? And I believe that if there would be a shift in the body of Christ and we'd start dedicating long hours to opening those doors and beholding what's on the other side, encountering what's on the other side, it would change everything. Picture it this way. There's the door over here. Who are you, God? All right, picture a door. Just picture a door. Okay, there's a door. When you open the door, you open it, you just crack it just a little. It blows open with a hurricane force wind rushing at you. And right on the other side of that door is the sun. All right, it's the sun. So imagine there's actually a door that can hold up to the sun and you opened it and the sun's on the other side. What would happen to you? You'd be disintegrated, right? There would be nothing left of you. That's who he is. That's who's on the other side of that door. We need to open that door, encounter the greatness of God on the other side of that door. This other door, how you feel about me, how does God feel about me? All right, imagine there's another door. You're about to open it. And when you crack it just the slightest bit, all of a sudden coming, rushing out of it, the whole other side is filled with molten lava that just envelops you the moment you open the door. But rather than searing pain, what you feel is the pleasure of God, the delight of God, the love of God enveloping you like molten lava. Man, if we would take the time to open that door and experience the emotions of God, how he really feels about us, seeing how great he is and how he feels about us, it would transform our entire lives. Guess who the door is on both of those? Jesus. We cannot know God and who he is apart from Jesus. He made the way for us to know who he is. We cannot know how God feels about us and experience his emotions for us apart from Jesus. He made the way for that. But don't forget that just because he's the door, we tend to forget he's also what's on the other side of the door. The blazing sun and hurricane force wind, that is Jesus. The molten lava, that is Jesus. 
He's both the door and what's on the other side of the door. You go, oh, that can't be. Remember the parable that Jesus told about the sheep gate? And he goes, the one who doesn't come in by the gate, who comes into the sheep pen and doesn't come in through the gate, he's the deceiver. But the one who comes in through the gate, he's the good shepherd. And Jesus goes, I am the gate. And I am the good shepherd. He's the gate and he's the good shepherd. He's the door and he's what's on the other side of the door. Man, if we will take the time, take the time to be fascinated by Jesus. The issue is we just don't take the time. We don't put in the time or the effort that it takes to just get before him and open one of those doors and experience the greatness of who he is. Both of those doors really are leading to the same place, just from a different angle. Who are you, Jesus? I want to know you. I want to know how you feel about me. I want to encounter the greatness of who you are, the greatness of your desire for me. Let's stand.